0: So fasting has been part of the human landscape for a long time. So it's a tool that our ancestors would have used both intentionally for health purposes throughout history for spiritual purposes and from a food scarcity standpoint humans would have gone through times of fasting as well that's encoded in our dna so we're decreasing that mismatch between genetics and epigenetics to gain metabolic flexibility or becoming more fat adapted or keto adapted these are all used interchangeably so it's ability to burn both fat and sugar
1: Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am Part Geek, Part Magic and want to share the juiciest questions, topics and often taboo conversations that I think I've always hey, wanted to be a part buddies. of. Welcome back, back to, to another to episode happy. of Better so let's with Dr. Stephanie. Better. It's me your host Dr. Stephanie Estima. This week, I am bringing you a conversation with Dr. Will Cole, and we are talking all about fasting. And Dr. Will Cole, in case you have never heard of him, he is a best-selling author of several books, The Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and his latest book, Intuitive Fasting, which is a New York Times bestseller. And we're going to talk about how in the book, how he shows how to use some of the powerful benefits of flexible, intermittent fasting to gain metabolic flexibility and to finally find some food piece, like, can I get an amen, right? Dr. Cole is the host of The Art of Being Well. So he's a fellow podcaster and has co-hosted other popular podcasts like Goop Fellas from Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop Media and Keto Talk. And today our conversation, as you might expect, was all about the physiology of fasting. So what actually is metabolic flexibility? It's sort of this nebulous term that's thrown around. Uh, So he does a really great job of explaining what metabolic flexibility is, what some of the signs and symptoms of blood sugar imbalance might be. Uh, There are many, and he talks about this in his book. So he gives us a rundown on some of the more common signs and symptoms. And then we talk about uh, different types of fast. So uh, time-resisted or time-restricted eating, we talk about longer fasts, we talk about OMADs, and then we go through his protocol in terms of how to build up your fasting tolerance. So he has a four-week program. We talk in depth about what you do in week one, what you do in week two, et cetera, We talk about strategic carbohydrates and their role in the program. Uh, One of the things that I find personally is that people are just scared of carbs and they really shouldn't be. So really, if you're smart about carbs, they are your best friend for growing in the places that you want. And of course, um, not in the places that you don't. And then we talk about men and women during, uh, and the differences for men and women for fasting. So obviously, you know, this is a really big interest of mine. Uh, part of my book was dedicated to fasting and the differences between men and women. And Will does a really good job of parsing apart some of the different cohorts of females and talking about why we cannot just look at women as one sort of monolithic category, right? It's like that, that categorization of being a woman in and of itself is almost meaningless. It's like, just like saying, well, look at that human over there this is the protocol for that human, you know, like there's tall women, short women, women with PCOS, women in perimenopause, women without ovaries, you know, women who suffer from estrogen dominance, thyroid issues, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we talk a little bit about that. And then we talk about his own personal fasting practice. Now, just before we get into the pod, I want to just remind you, if you are not already subscribed to Pretty Please with some organic cherries (laughs) on top to subscribe to the pod, you get the latest downloads, you don't have to go into your app and figure out where the podcast is. that hasn't unsubscribed you. So you get them as they drop and we drop three episodes a week. So I'd love for you to subscribe to the pod. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Will Cole. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. All right. I am so excited this week, Bettys. We have Dr. Will Cole on the pod. Welcome, Will. I'm so happy to have you here.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be talking with you.
1: Yeah. And we're going to be talking about your latest book. Uh, you've written several, but your latest book, Intuitive Fasting. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be doing a really deep dive into fasting in general today. I think that there is, I get so many questions from my community around fasting. I typically serve women. So we're definitely going to talk about females and fasting today. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's just this thirst. There's this knowledge uh, you know, gap between what like, how can I do fasting if I've never started? What does that look like? Is that starvation mode? Am I going to eat up all my muscles? Am I, when I eat again, am I just putting on all fat? There's all these myths, right? Um, that surround it. And I think that this book that you've written is really such an excellent playbook for bringing someone who, you know, even if you do have some fasting experience, but it really takes the novice faster into building, And building and building to more of a expert faster and this idea of intuition and using your body signals to direct what you're going to do. So we're going to do all of that today. Um, But before we do, uh, because this is the first time that you're on the pod, I would love for you to, you know, in case there's someone who is not familiar with you or your work. Uh, your clinical interests. Tell us about the work uh, that you do in the world. Uh, as I mentioned, you've written other books uh, that I think are really important and, you know, what is, what is meaningful to you? You know, tell us a little bit about uh, you as, as the human and as the, as the doctor.
0: Yeah, thank you. So I'm a functional medicine practitioner. I, I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. So um for the past 11, 12 years, I've been really immersed in consulting people via webcam. We didn't call it telehealth 12 years ago. We called it a virtual functional medicine clinic because the telehealth wasn't a term that was used within healthcare, but obviously that's what we were doing. So we ship labs wherever people are at and, um, we consult them via webcam. So I have a passion for people that are struggling with different inflammatory problems, mainly different types of autoimmune problems. So that's really what I'm doing 11 hours a day is, is talking to people online and going over their labs and really developing and curating a tailored protocol based on that lab on those labs and that person's health history. So I'm clinically monitoring them and coaching them and guiding them for a year and a half, two years, typically sometimes shorter, but most patients are, are, dealing with that sort of time frame, And we're getting them back to health. We're really giving them answers as to why they feel the way that they do, and then giving them action steps to do something about it. So uh, in that world of autoimmunity, I, I deal a lot with things that drive autoimmunity. So things like um, chronic infections, like chronic viral issues, mold toxicity, we see a lot, especially over this past year with the pandemic, people are in one area a lot. So we're seeing higher levels of mycotoxins or mold toxins. And Lyme disease and co-infections that are reactivated. So chronic Lyme issues. Um, and, and obviously, um, Gut underlying gut problems too that are impacting this cascade of inflammation. So that's my main focus clinically and I write about these things, right? So I, I wrote a Ketotarian is my name from my first book. It's a basically a clean ketogenic way of eating and leveraging the benefits of ketosis and obviously intuitive fasting, my newest book is an extension of that conversation of being fat adapted and the anti-inflammatory gut health benefits of the state of ketosis at least cyclically. Uh, And then The Inflammation Spectrum is my second book. And I have a podcast and it's called The Art of Being Well. And that I started recently and I hosted a few podcasts before then with uh, Goop. uh, Their first spin spin-off podcast, I hosted Goop Fellas and then um, Keto Talk I hosted for three years doing that one. And I, that's my jam. And I have a wife and two kids and two golden doodles and two little frogs that I take care of (laughs) that my daughter swore she would take care of it, but I have to feed the frogs.
1: (laughs) It's so funny how children always, we always get these little pets with our kids, right? Like we had hamsters and then we had crabs and then we had the frogs. That's so funny. (laughs) Uh, All right. Let's talk about your book. Let's talk about, and actually before we even get into some of the, you know, some of the juicy uh, physiology of it, I actually just want to you know, pause and maybe double click on the title. Cause I thought that the title, uh, and I know you've heard this before, but the title is really brilliant because um, there seems to be this discussion. Um, and this was actually the precipice that led me to reaching out to you saying, Hey, I, I want you on the, I, like, I'm sorry, this is happening, but I want you on the show uh, mm-hmm. to talk about fasting. Cause there's, there's this um, idea that Intuition or intuitive eating, which is, you know, one of the more commonly talked about uh, parameters in the intuitive space, is something that is exactly how you feel in the moment. So you may feel like you want to fast, or you may feel like you want a burger, or you may want a pizza, and whatever your body is telling you, that's intuition. And, um, This is where I uh, disagree (laughs) with the intuitive health coaches uh, and even to a certain extent, this health at every size um, movement that I feel misses the boat slightly here because sometimes your body can be telling you to eat the pizza or the ice cream, but that's not necessarily your intuition. That's just poor glucose control (laughs) or that is poor, you know, your thyroid is out of whack. So tell me a little bit about the, the philosophy behind what intuitive fasting Mm -hmm. is.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So it, when I wrote, started writing the book, I started writing intuitive fasting at the end of 2019, the entire 2020, and it came out the early 2021. Uh, so for me, when I was writing it, it was born out of my clinical experience. It really is the most uncontroversial thing out there because my patients are getting healthier. The labs are improving. This is just like a healthy measured, flexible approach to intermittent fasting. So I thought it was going to be, and to be honest with you, the majority of people that read the book that they, they got the message, but the problem is that age old cliche of judging a book by its cover. They didn't understand the conversation that I was having and our culture, a certain sect of our culture, small you know percentage of our culture is really addicted to being offended and addicted to being triggered. And Every faction under the sun in social media land has these sort of militant tribalism that's going on. It's really toxic. But that was within the intuitive health coaching world, I guess, is is really what it was. Because there was a book in the 90s that was called Intuitive Eating, capital I, capital E, like the book. My book has nothing to do with that. It's really a conversation about this broader concept of what you're saying, this intuitive uh, approach to food and what does that actually mean? Because it's thrown around very flippantly on social media, but I'm coming in from a functional medicine standpoint. So I wanted to show people from a functional medicine, clinical nutrition standpoint, it's really easy and nice and sexy to say, let's say I'm intuitively eating, but what does it actually mean? Because statistically about 80% of the population has a massive blood sugar problem. They're in somewhere on the insulin resistance spectrum. Most of those people, their physiology, the, the dis, dysfunction of their physiology to create uh, some sort of semblance of homeostasis will go born out of insatiable cravings and hangriness go towards things that will perpetuate disordered physiology. Uh, So this is just statistics. It's just what is what it is. So what I'm saying is let's, it's, I really teach my patients how to come from a place of a mindfulness, like eating more mindfully and eating and fasting more intuitively, let's do that. But you have to have at least some semblance of metabolic flexibility because metabolic inflexibility, like you're saying, is it hangriness or is it intuition? Is it insatiable cravings or intuition? Like blood sugar volatility, stress eating, emotional eating is not intuitive eating. And we have like these warring sides where you have diet culture, which isn't healthy, you know, shaming people to weight loss, becoming obsessive and arduous and punitive. That's not good. But the polar opposite that's born out of that problem isn't good either. Like the anti-diet culture, the uh, healthy at every size, all of this stuff may have good intentions and they uh, they do have good intentions most of the time. But the problem is there's, there's no context or nuance. It's just a complete recoiled opposite response. Again, just toxic tribalism. And it's not healthy. There's a third way where we shouldn't be normalizing things that hurt us. We shouldn't be normalizing things that hurt human physiology, right. because that's not a form of self-respect. That's that's metabolic disorder. Right. So it's to me, it's like that's a third way of what I call in the book "food peace" of just like letting go of these sort of diet wars culture wars and saying, what works for my body? What does my body love my body? What does my body hate? And metabolic flexibility is fertile foundation on a physiological level for authentic mindful eating and intuitive fasting. And you'll be able to intuitively fast, not because it's some obsessive, restrictive, disordered eating, because But when your blood sugar is more stable, you're more fat adapted, you can go longer without eating, not just because you are more stable and more grounded. So that's the conversation that I'm having in the book, because I do believe and I'm teaching my readers, the readers in the book and my patients how to use food and fasting as a meditation. But it's an art and a practice that you have to show up yourself. You have to put the work in to actually hear that still small voice of your intuition, because all that other stuff, the hangriness, the cravings will actually drown out the the, at your actual intuition.
1: Well, this is what I think is so important about your work is that you, I think you point out the, what should be obvious, which is that you need to train your intuition. You need to remove the noise, you know, of the hormonal dysregulation or the systemic inflammation, as you were saying, or the HPA axis dysfunction, or, you know, or whatever it is that's causing the, you know, the leptin and the ghrelin and all the dysregulation that can happen there. Mm -hmm. And this really gets to the heart of, um, uh, of evidence-based practices, right? We often, you know, and I, I sort of always knock on like bro science because it's always like, well, if there's not an RCT for it, then we have to just completely disregard it without, you know, that can be presented without evidence, can be disregarded without evidence. And that's actually not the definition of evidence-based practices. So you have, mm-hmm. you know, a clinician, a clinician like yourself who's seeing patients. So you take what's available in the literature, which often and we're going to talk about this as it relates to females, Sometimes really lacking, mm-hmm. but then there's almost like an overlying three circle, you know, Venn diagram. And the other part of evidence base is not just the literature, but it's the clinical experience of the doctor, the patterns that he or she has been able to suss out, which is what you just said. I spent, you know, 2019 writing it, didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal because this is the patterns that had emerged in my practice. And then the third piece, which most people forget about, is the desires of the patient, right? It's like what the patient wants, right? Because if you're saying, listen, you got to do like a five-day fast and they don't want to do that, well, that's not, you know, you're not going to get the prognosis, you're not going to get the outcome that you want. Mm-hmm. And so this is why I was, um, in many ways, really shocked at the response. Um, mm-hmm. But then sort of given the, you know, there just seems to be a bit of a shift in the climate anyway, that really disregards the pursuit of critical thinking. It, Mm -hmm. as you said, people want to be offended. People want to get upset about something because it's, you know, in some ways it's clickbait and it gives them a bit of a, you know, a soapbox to stand on and the attention that, you know, maybe that they, you know, are not getting in other areas of their life.
0: Yeah, totally. It's a systemic issue. And I realized in hindsight, I'm happy that I went through that. And in the scheme of life, it's not that big of a deal. And it was overwhelmingly positive. The book hit the New York Times list. So like most people, I I would say this, anybody that's read the book, they really love it because they get the message. It's just solid stuff. Uh, And if nothing else, you could just learn things. It's, It's a very even handed book. Um, but, you know, part of it, too, it was the title. Right. And, and I, I i loved I thought of the title as my idea, but it, it's paradoxical on purpose. It was to get people to realize fasting won't be intuitive when you're metabolically inflexible. Right. But when you're metabolically flexible, look, fasting has been used intuitively for generations. This is nothing new. I'm just reminding people of our roots, that fasting has been used for health purposes and from an ancestral health perspective and from for spiritual purposes. So this is nothing new. I'm just showing this the modern science. And it's so exciting, that can be used as a mindfulness practice and as a health tool to really um, heal the body. Um, But part of it, too, is the fact that Gwyneth Uh, Paltrow was attached to the book too. And she wrote the forward of the book. And I think I could have written anything. If she wrote the forward of the book, people would have spun it in a weird way because it's, there's just, they're committed to misunderstanding parts of our culture. So it's unfortunate, but you know, it is what it is. It's, It's the world we live in right now.
1: Well, let me tell you that you handled it with far more grace than I don't, I think I could have. So I commend you you for that. I was watching it and then that's actually why I wanted to reach out to you because I thought that, I think that your message is so very much aligned with mine and you do it in such a simplistic and not simplistic as in overly simplified, but in an easy to understand available to the masses kind of way. So I really appreciate that about you. All right. Let's talk about, uh, let's define metabolic flexibility and metabolic adaptability. You talk about this in the book. I think that this is a term, uh, as I was saying to you before we uh, hit record, it can be a little nebulous, like it's sort of like, what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so why don't you walk us through your definition uh, of metabolic flexibility and how that plays into the intuitive fasting, uh, part of the book?
0: Yeah. So metabolic flexibility, it's the term, it's a term to use both fat and sugar as fuel. So we b- have the ability to burn both sugar and fat. And we're born as all babies are born burning fat for fuel. They're actually producing ketones for proper neuro- neurological development and obviously burning sugar as well. So that's part of our DNA. Our re- researchers estimate that our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. So it's, our world changing very dramatically in a very finite period of time that's the problem this genetic epigenetic mismatch or this evolutionary mismatch that we are living in this brave new world from a dna ancestral health perspective where over time babies lose that birthright of metabolic flexibility because they're eating the standard western diet oftentimes and exposed to things environmentally and we start to lose that flexibility and over time we become more metabolically inflexible. We're sort of bound and stuck uh, in this sugar burning mode. And that's why back to my earlier statistic of around 80% of the world is is struggling with some sort of metabolic insulin resistant inflammatory problem. 50 million Americans have an autoimmune disease and millions more around the world. Um, and then even more are on this larger inflammation spectrum that I write about. So it's the majority of the human race. So the point is, is that we need all of these are manifestations manifestations of metabolic inflexibility or metabolic rigidity. So through functional medicine, through changing, looking at your food through intermittent fasting, you are using tools to decrease the chasm between genetics and epigenetics. You're realigning and eating what's in alignment and living what's in alignment with your physiology. So fasting has been part of the human landscape for a long time. So it's a tool that our ancestors would have used both intentionally for health purposes throughout history For spiritual purposes and from a food scarcity standpoint, humans would have gone through times of fasting as well. That's encoded in our DNA. So we're decreasing that mismatch between genetics and epigenetics to gain metabolic flexibility or becoming more fat adapted or keto adapted. These are all used interchangeably. So it's ability to burn both fat and sugar and intermittent fasting and food. But fasting specifically is the analogy that I use in the book is it's sort of this proverbial yoga class for metabolism. If someone's metabolically inflexible, it's like someone's hamstrings are tight and their muscles are tight, right? And they're going to yoga class and they think, what the heck? Yoga is not for me. And they've never done yoga before. And they could say yoga is not for them. Uh, and it's super difficult. Well, yeah, it's it's not yoga's fault though. It's it's your inflexibility that's, that's the problem. And that's why you should be doing it to become more flexible and strong and centered and rooted in the terms that are used in yoga. So that's the same thing with intermittent fasting. It, it's ex- by I, the protocol that I put in the book is – this expanding and contracting, ebbing and flowing, uh, vacillating, eating and fasting windows, that's making you more metabolically flexible. So you can gain strength, you can gain resilience, you can gain a a rudeness and awareness of your body and your blood sugar is more stable and inflammation levels are more stable. And you have a lot more clear because you've calmed the noise, you have a clear awareness and discernment on what your body loves and what your body hates. So That's what metabolic flexibility is on a physiological level. It is fertile ground for authentic uh, food piece or, or intuitive eating and fasting.
1: And that's great because I think that this brings, you know, when we think about fasting, of course, this marries your work, your previous work with ketotarian in terms of being in ketosis. And what you're Mm -hmm. saying is we should be able to burn glucose when we want or carbohydrates, right? The end product being glucose, or we should be able to burn fatty acids and or ketone bodies in a carbohydrate depleted environment via, you know, beta oxidation and all the other things. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: this brings me to the question of ketosis and I think that you and I are similar here, but I, I still want to ask the question and get you to expand on it a little bit. What Mm -hmm. we often see in, um, ketogenic communities, um, is that there is this pervasive idea that we should be in ketosis all the time, that the goal Mm -hmm. should be, you know, and the argument is given, you know, something similar to what you just said, well, our ancestors would have, you know, prolonged times of famine. There wouldn't, we'd they'd have to, you know, hunt for days and whatever it is. And that ketosis should always be the goal. Mm -hmm. Um, what is your, what is your thought on that in in terms of, do you think, I mean, I guess the question is, do you think that we should always be striving for ketosis?
0: No, the average person, no, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's a form of, and I talk about the research of this in the book, is hormesis. It's an act, a hormetic effect in the body. It's a good stress Um, and the dose matters and the context of the dose, depending on the person that's using it matters. So, um, and that's like the other part of the conversation that I'm having in the book is this context and this is bioindividuality, right? This is the heart of functional medicine and that's what I'm bringing to the fasting conversation is we're all different. There's an amazing tool of intermittent fasting, but how you use it is, should be bio-individual. And that's the intuitive part of really checking in with your body and using fasting as a mindfulness practice to A, check in with your body to see how you should be using this, but B, be, using food and fasting as a mindfulness practice is a great way to really lower inflammation on that level on a mental, emotional, spiritual level, therapeutically to calm stress hormones. So the point is, no, it's, it's, it's a tool to use in the toolbox. There are some people that need to use ketosis longer term therapeutically with different neurological disorders, obviously seizure disorders, people that have other neurological problems, people that have um, different autoimmune issues can really benefit from longer-term ketosis and they know intuitively when they go out of ketosis they don't feel as good so obviously the benefits outweigh any negatives for long-term ketosis so that is part of that context for intuitively for them that's what they need the average person that's looking to just boost their energy levels to push past the plateau to lower inflammation to support their gut health that's not something that I find that the average person needs to be in ketosis longer term. And it's not even desirable because it's about that balance. And that's what metabolic flexibility is. I mean, you have to, the the term flexibility means burning both sugar and fat. So it doesn't mean that you always have to be in ketosis forever and ever. It just means, can you get the ability to actually be fat adapted? And then from there, you'll have the flexibility to burn both. So I actually advocate for a more of a cyclical approach, these vacillating fat Fasting and macronutrient uh, fluctuations as well. So, we are um, both the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting both increase beta hydroxybutyrate. And that's why the ketogenic diet, in many ways, is mimicking fasting. So, we are leveraging those benefits therapeutically from a food standpoint and a fasting standpoint, but we're lightening up on the fasting and we're increasing their clean carbohydrates to maintain that metabolic flexibility, which is really good for female hormones. If you're cycling female, it's really good to get that kindling on the fire. I mean, if you're using that analogy where the fire is your metabolism or your energy for the day, but. Uh, you- clean kindling is sugar, clean carbs. It's, it's going to create some light, but it's going to be short-lived. Most people are living with kindling all day long because they're not fat adapted. So they get hangry. If they miss a meal, their blood sugar is all over the place. Cause I have to put six small kindling snacks throughout the day uh, meals uh, throughout the day to maintain that blaze. Okay. There is cleaner kindling and dirty kindling, but it's all kindling. And if that was your only option, then pick the cleaner kindling. But the point is the best fire, the best energy, the best metabolism, the best health is putting a log on the fire with kindling. And that putting a log on the fire is being fat adapted and being able to burn fat for fuel. So you have to put the work in to get the log on the fire. And then from there, the best sustainable long blaze of energy for your life is going to have both log and kindling or fat and sugar or carbs for, um, fuel. Uh, so that's what the average person that's looking to optimize their health, what I would recommend. And that's what I do myself as well.
1: That's great. And I I love that because I think that, you know, always trying to be in ketosis is, is in my opinion, uh, hum, my humble opinion, the, the you know, metabolic inflexibility. Like if you're only doing that, uh, of course, and what I've seen clinically, I don't know if you've noticed this pattern, but when I have worked with patients who have only been in ketosis, they are quite insulin insensitive. Like if you give them like an oral glucose tolerance test, like, and you know, th- they're, they are quite insulin resistant versus if I were to give them a little bit of like maybe a carb feed know, two or three days before and then give them the OGTT, the, the glucose, then they do much better. So I actually, uh, really appreciate the, um, the observation that, and the, and the narrative really to be on a more, you know, on a widespread audience that you don't need to be in ketosis forever. And I like, um, I, I agree with you in terms of, um, people like autoimmune conditions, like I have a a girlfriend with, um, and I've seen this sort of anecdotally as well, uh, women typically with Hashimoto's, uh, who try. A carnivore, for example, mm-hmm. do really, re- which is a which is a kind of subclassification of the ketogenic diet. It's just absolutely no carbs, but it's mm-hmm. still you know, mm-hmm. uh, still I would consider that keto. They do so well with it, and then when and when they start adding in more, they add in plants, they add in carbs. Maybe they get the hashies flare up or whatever. And, we, you know, maybe that's a separate conversation because there's like a gut dysbiosis component to it and like co-infections and stuff. But yeah. um, I definitely think that there are populations, as you mentioned, like the autoimmune uh, cohorts, uh, as you said, the neurological people who deal with, you know, seizures and things like ketosis has been shown over the long term to be beneficial. But for the average, you know, Joe or Jane, call it, who's just trying to heal this Uh, metabolic syndrome or this pre-diabetic insulin resistant kind of state, this is not something that is a long-term strategy.
0: Yeah. It's not needed. And I want people to, I mean, the section in the book where I call the metaphysical meals, that's, that is the Like spirit, what do you do when you're fasting? Like the actual mindfulness practices of all all this, as people learn, just like with yoga, it's not gonna be intuitive at the beginning, but after a few cycles of the four-week protocol in the book, what people, I've seen this for over a decade, people will really start to own it for themselves and adjust the protocol for themselves intuitively as they gain metabolic flexibility and confidence and a mindful awareness of how food and fasting make them feel. So there will be people that will most of the month will be in ketosis, but then they'll maybe increase clean carbohydrates if they want to, or a couple around their menstrual cycle. But it's the majority of the month they are in ketosis. And then the other person, they'll intuitively really – moderate their carbs they're in ketosis sometimes with deeper fasts but they really don't aren't in it that much but they both feel great they're both their labs look amazing and they right. both really have that food piece where they're there there's a stillness with food it's just they're not at war with themselves they're not at war with the dieting culture stuff. And they really just don't care about the pontification that they hear on social media. They just know for themselves, this is what makes me feel. And that's what I want people to find for themselves. They don't need to, I want them to be their own end of one experiment and own like, what's their own randomized controlled trial in their life.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly. And like you said, it's going to be different for everyone, right? And even the same person over the course of the month is going to be different for them as well.
0: 100%, totally. Yeah, what you use, what you do today isn't necessarily what you're going to need to do forever and ever. As your health evolves, so will what you do.
1: Right. Right. So you mentioned before 80% of the uh, American population, uh, I'm based in Canada. We have yeah. primarily in the Canadians. Yeah, yeah. The Canadians <laughs> yes. It's a, we're, we're your cousins. We do the same <laughs> thing as y'all do. Right. So, uh, you know, 80% of let's call it Western diet, right? Western yeah. civilization, some type of insulin resistance, whether that's detectable or not, uh, whether, you know, some type of metabolic dysfunction, what are some of the pre, uh, we'll call it preclinical clinical or maybe clinical signs, actually not Mm preclinical, but signs that someone might be having blood sugar dysregulation, blood sugar imbalance. Because you talk about these in the book, uh, you have like a whole, it's almost like an, you know, an entire page of like this, this, this. And I think that some people might Um, most people, when I read this list, I was like, Oh, you know what? I like a lot of people that I, you know, a lot of patients that I care for would say, yes, uh, they Mm -hmm. feel weak. They feel jittery. They want caffeine, like they need the caffeine, all these things. So maybe just, you don't have to list all of them because it was, Mm -hmm. it was such a comprehensive list, but just for the, for my audience, my community listening, what would be some of the things that would tip a little bit of a yellow flag for you? Mm -hmm. You know, if they're initially have initial consultation with you and they're like, Hey, I have like, what are some of the symptoms that you might be looking for that would point your clinical judgment towards um, insulin uh, dysregulation and po- possibly uh, blood glucose dysregulation as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. And it, these things exist on a spectrum. So by the time somebody's diagnosed with uh, type 2 diabetes or PCOS or something diagnosable that has that's governed by insulin resistance or even autoimmune issues too, which isn't insulin resistant per se, even though insulin resistance will make flare-ups worse, um, but the problem is by the time someone's diagnosed with these different chronic inflammatory problems, it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis when things were brewing on this inflammation spectrum. So people have to realize no no matter where you're at on that inflammation spectrum and however that looks like in your life, these things oftentimes don't happen overnight. So I adapted for a, the quiz in the book is adapted from questions that I I ask patients, and I want people to take that metabolic flexibility quiz in the book. And we have it at Dr. Real cool.com too. If people just don't have the book and want to take it themselves. But basically, it's to show how metabolically flexible they are or aren't. And some good telltale signs are the hangriness is one of them, where it's like if you get really irritable, if you miss a meal, when you eat, if you get really tired afterwards, if you feel like eating, um, takes up more of your mental bandwidth where you're just thinking about the next meal or the next snack. And you're thinking about what you're going to have for, like, it's just like, you're kind of all consumed with it. Um, if you get jittery, uh, shaky, if you miss a meal as well, um, if you have trouble losing weight, if you have low libido, if you're struggling with fatigue issues, um, those are some symptoms that the, there probably is some sort of metabolic inflexibility going on and we have to do something about it.
1: Yeah. Great. Uh, And you can see that, you know, just from listening to some of those, you know, like those symptoms, they're quite systemic, right? Like they, Mm -hmm. they sort of touch every part of your waking function. So uh, I'll make sure that we have um, the quiz link um, in the, in the show notes as well. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes and your blood pressure no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima, that's D-R-I-N-K, com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A, and you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. All right, so let's let's actually dive into the program that you talk about. So this four week fasting protocol. Walk us through, um, and walk us through each week and what the objectives are with each of the types of fasting protocols that you lay out.
0: So the subset of of intermittent fasting that I'm exploring in Intuitive Fasting is time compressed feeding or time restricted feeding. So it's not about caloric restriction. And I I like how you, at the top of the show, you were saying, well, people think it's starvation or it's chronic caloric restriction. Because a lot of times these terms are conflated and confused, Um, but time compressed feeding has nothing to do with chronic caloric restriction. You're eating the same amount of foods you would any other day. You're eating a healthy amount of of calories, but you're just doing it in specific windows. That's what the exciting research and health benefits are on this specific type of fasting and there's many types of fasting too that all have really exciting science behind it and i talk about different types of fasting within the book too as far as the research is concerned but the main protocol and the main type of research that i'm exploring out of the scientific literature in the book is time restricted feeding or trf um because it's accessible it's approachable it's flexible it's it's good for most humans to explore and um it's, it's I, I don't like chronic caloric restriction. It's not good, and I actually, show the science in the book that over time that will lower your metabolism. And it what it is is just decreasing the 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 kindling on the fire. If you if all you're depending on is kindling or your clean carbs or carb or dirty carbs um, for fuel. And then you take that kindling off, your light's going to go out. You're going to feel fatigued and miserable because there's not a log on the fire. And you just got rid of your only fuel. And that's what people do with chronically cutting their calories and expecting that to work long term. The best fire, again, that best energy metabolism is having both kindling and a fire log on the fire. Uh, so that's what I want people to train their bodies to produce that log on the fire to get fat adapted. And through intermittent fasting, time compressed feeding specifically, it's a great way to do that. So week one is a 1212, which is if we have 24 hours in day, a day 12 1212 is 7am to 7pm as or 8am to 8pm, you can move it around with your schedule to be your eating window and you're mainly fasting through the night until you break the fast at breakfast the next morning but it is allowing a couple of hours after dinner before you go to bed. So it's allowing you're not eating too late at night, it's kind of eliminating the late night snacking, which can be definitely an unintentional saboteur for many people. And that's what I'm doing with week one paired with a ketotarian way of eating, which is a clean sort of Mediterranean ketogenic way of eating, which is the title and the the research of what my first book is, but it's two sides of the same coin. We're talking about fat adaptation and one way to enhance this clean Mediterranean ketogenic way of eating ketotarian is through intermittent fasting. So I talked about intermittent fasting in 2018 when I wrote ketotarian, but I wanted to go into a deeper dive in this research because I really feel and know clinically and exponentially can enhance the benefits when you pair this way of eating with some intermittent fasting that's flexible. So you're getting... Beta hydroxybutyrate going, you're getting that log in the fire going with week one because you're getting the benefits of fasting. You're mimicking the benefits of fasting when you're eating your food with this way of eating, with, with this ketogenic approach. And then the time compressed feeding is really leaning the body gently into this state of of ketosis as well so i call it the body reset week Um, but it's also a gut reset week too i talk about the research of the gut microbiome circadian rhythm so there's different colonies of bacteria some are higher in the morning when you wake up some are higher in the evening when you go to sleep it's sort of this wave-like gut garden ocean-like motion throughout the day and most people's microbiome circadian rhythm is really disrupted. There's a lot of overgrowths going on, a lot of dysbiosis, people with SIBO and SIFO and there's bacterial and fungal overgrowths. I see it all day long when I look at labs. And the foods we're eating, what we're eating, and when we're eating really does a number on that balance of the gut garden. So one way to for us to start to support the resetting and balance of the gut microbiome circadian rhythm is through intermittent fasting. So that's what we're doing in week one. Week two is the metabolic recharge week. So we go to reset to recharge. And I'm titling these, I titled these very specifically because I'm really highlighting the research in the journals, looking at specific things. So week one was kind of like metabolic adaptation, the gut microbiome balance, and just general uh, metabolic flexibility, supporting that.
1: Slow wade into the pool. Exactly. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And to use that yoga analogy, it's that kind of beginner's yoga class where you're not like doing the real advanced stuff in week one, because that's too much too soon. You're not, body's not ready for it. Right. Week two, we go to about a 14 to 18 hours, So we're leaning in. I gave a window to intuitively check in with your body and lean up as you can throughout the week. Um, so it's flexible. And but it, using that 18 hour fasting window as an example in week two. It's like a six hour eating eating window or 18 hour fast. So 12 to 6 p.m. is a typical what people do. They're eating through those six hours, again, not restricting the calories, eating those foods within those six, six hours. And then you're fasting the other 18 hours. That's the week, as its name implies, recharge, metabolic recharge. We're working on cardiometabolic markers like insulin resistance and lowering inflammation and improving that that um, prop, lip, healthy lipid panels as well. And then week three is a cellular renewal fast. So it's every other day. It's not like the first two weeks were every day you're doing it, but week three is a non-consecutive, almost OMAD approach. So OMAD is an acronym that stands for one meal a day. And it's, I'll call it, I call it almost OMAD because it's a little bit more flexible. It's a 20 to 22 hour fast versus a more traditional 23 to one fasting to eating window with a typical OMAD. Because there's studies that show because remember, we're not restricting calories to get all your calories in in one hour is a lot for most people. Yeah. Um, and there's a pathway called the PKR pathway that the researchers refer to as metaflammation or systemic inflammation. It's just a lot of gut digestion. It's a lot of work for your gut to do. So by broadening it up like a four hour eating window or two hour eating window is a lot more appropriate for people to do. And another way that I'm making it more sustainable week three is it's every other day, not every day. So you're getting a bigger, re, a refeeding uh, day on the odd day. So it's almost OMAD day, then a 12-12, then almost OMAD day, then 12-12. Those are the deeper, uh, we're working on supporting the longevity benefits of intermittent fasting, the autophagy or cellular recycling benefits, sort of the anti-accelerated aging pathways of fasting and um, and then week four, we're opening it back up at 12, 12. We're, we 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 went, we went vacillated in and then vacillated back out. So week four, we're working on increasing our clean carbohydrates. We're doing a lighter fasting window. We're supporting hormonal rebalance. So that's the rebalance week. So reset, recharge, renew, and rebalance for the four weeks. And people can cycle through those four weeks as many times as they need to until they've really brought that score and that quiz down. And they've used fasting as a mindfulness practice to really learn. And where their body felt the best at, because we're all unique and different. People can evolve that protocol intuitively as they gain strength. So just like that yoga practice, it's, a pra- it's called a practice for a reason. And they can really show up for themselves to evolve that practice intuitively. And that's what I want people to do with this as well.
1: That's why doctors have practices and not yeah. perfects too, right? Like we get better with time, just like mm-hmm. the same with this fasting protocol that you're outlining. And I, I love cyclical living. Like you talked to me about anything cycles, I'm all over it. Um, and I, and I love this because you're, what you're doing essentially is sort of sneaking in fasting tolerance, right? And you, mm-hmm. you've used this analogy with yoga. Like if you just went to like an advanced Ashtanga yoga and they're like, you know, I don't know the position names, but if they're doing headstands and fish pose and all the things <laughs> you're going to... You're going to feel like a loser and you're never going to come back to it, which is kind of the point with the slow weight into the pool or the, you know, it's totally like slowing, you know, kind of getting your, you know, your toes wet, or as you said, going to the beginner yoga class, because it's, it's the humans in, in, when we look at sort of humans as a, you know, as a, as a pool. And I know that there's a lot of bio-individuality, as you said, but we're not going to do things that make us feel awful. Right. Mm-hmm. So they, anybody can do a five day fast and it, like anyone can kind of get through it. But if you haven't built up the tolerance to fasting, as mm-hmm. you've outlined where you do 12, 12, and then you do a 16, eight or an 18, six, and then you do an alternating omat, and then kind of come back to that it's not going to be painful. It's, you're Mm going to feel like you're winning, which also puts you in momentum. So for a lot of people, they, and myself included, I need to feel like I'm winning. Like I need to feel like I'm crushing this program that I'm doing Mm -hmm. well on it. Yeah, And then the, the, the chance of someone coming back to it or repeating the cycle as I mean, that's what you want. You want them to repeat the program, um, is going to be much higher because it's not going to be as painful. It's not going to be, um, something that, you know, they remember and they're like, oh yeah, that's when I felt like I couldn't even get it. I felt like I was totally out of my league and I couldn't do it.
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. When you start feeling better, it's quite encouraging. I see that with patients so many times. And they want to keep doing things. So that's that catalyst, that paradigm shift that they'll start to see for themselves, where it's not about all the things they can't have. It's about, no, I love feeling great more than I thought I missed, something that detracted from how I wanted to feel. It's a bad trade-off. And you're it's it's leaning them in so there's they feel. Like they, they've got the handle on this and not rushing through it. It's something sustainable. It's not a fad crash thing. These are tools they can always go back on. And the book's only been out for a few months. And I hear people already taking that protocol and they've done it multiple times and evolved it for themselves intuitively And it's just a tool within their toolbox now. They know intuitively how to use these things. And they use that protocol in the book. It's just a springboard, just like that yoga class, to learn about themselves. And now they don't need a book anymore. They can go back to it for the recipes and things like that. But they know how to do this intuitively. And that's what I wanted for the book.
1: Yeah. And you you mentioned, you know, the small intestinal bacterial and fungal overgrowth. And just, you know, I wanted to just... talk about that for a minute, because that can really influence your craving. So just kind of back to the whole training your intuition. So when you're healing the gut microbiome, as you've laid out here, you're also going to be helping with that intuition because you're clearing out the stuff, you know, the aggressive bacteria that are causing all sort of erratic, you know, types of mood swings and cravings and all of those things as well. So it's just an important Absolutely. thing to highlight. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about men and women. And I don't want to do this in a reductionist way because, you know, men are not just like, there's not just one type of man, you know, there's not just, (laughs) just, and there's not one type of women. And I I would be curious for you to expand on, uh, there is some discussion. I have participated in this discussion as well around fasting for women. Um, and the premise, you know, when I talked about, uh, in my book, I talked about this premise that women are not little men and we have sort of different, you know, re- and we have different cycles, like reproductive cycles and then menopause, mm-hmm. perimenopause, et cetera. Um, talk to me a little bit about, um, some of the different applications of fasting that you have seen clinically and then talk and, and, and sort of parse apart, if you can, some of the different hormonal and like categories of women and how we might apply this, uh, this four week fasting protocol, or if there's any nuance to it, um, as well. So, uh, fasting for women, yes or no. And then, you know, let's maybe kind of go a little deeper into some of the different verticals that we might find, uh, our, mm-hmm. our women in.
0: Sure. Yeah. So there's a that's a big section of the book in the rebalance week specifically, where I really look at the research and my clinical experience on this is that, like you said, it's a very reductionist for us to say it's all women are the same and fasting's not good for women, which is a question that I get every day. It's like, I heard that fasting's not good for women. Well, we shouldn't say statements like that. We what we should be asking is. Who is she and how is she intermittent fasting? Because there's many types of women with many different variables and there's many types of intermittent fasting and they're not the same. So it's like someone saying high intensity interval training isn't good for women. It's like, well, how are they doing it? How much are they doing it? Who is she? What what type of health issues? So these are all types of hormesis, just like sauna therapy is, cold therapy is, high intensity intensity interval training, all that's active hormesis. So is intermittent fasting. So- I think, first of all, the time compressed feeding or time restricted feeding is great for many women because it's not multiple day fast. It's not chronically lowering your calories. I wouldn't recommend that for many women to do that unless they therapeutically needed to do multi day fasts. That's one caveat. But the average lifestyle purpose, someone that's trying to just feel great. I find that it's very just on, on the outset, that time compressed feeding is really great for women uh, to do no matter who they are, but then how she does it's important. So I recommend in the book um, for people to really check in with their bodies using those metaphysical meals of using fasting as a mindfulness practice. How is my energy? How's my libido? How's my sleep? How's my goal? How are my goals? And they many women will find they may not have to do this right away, even though I teach how to do it right away in the book. But at some point they're going to have to if they're cycling, if they have a menstrual cycle, to do lighter fast, so maybe go back to the twelve twelve and increase their clean carbohydrates around their period and around ovulation. Now, everyone cycles different, so obviously that's going to have to be adjusted intuitively and on a bio-individual level, but those are that's more or less the tools and the modifications that I would make. Now, because this is an amazing tool of intermittent fasting, there may be a few months where she does not have to do that. Even though from a maintenance standpoint, But she gets way more benefits by digging into the moderate and deeper fast for a time. And then she gets to the point where she's got the therapeutic benefits of fasting, her inflammation levels are lower, her blood sugar is more balanced, her gut's healthier, but a maintenance standpoint, a cyclical approach does make more sense. Again, what works for you today isn't necessarily what you're going to need to do forever and ever. But some women, they're already more or less okay. They just are looking to take it to the next level and they may want to do a cyclical approach right Out of the gates uh to really boost their brain maybe boost the brain function increase their energy levels or move past a plateau and shake things up uh with the intermittent fasting protocol in the book but i would recommend for those women where they're looking to just maybe take it to the next level to do a cyclical approach, meaning increase their clean carbohydrates and lighter fasting around their period and menstruate around their ovulation and menstruation right at the at the beginning of them trying this this new, these new tools within their toolbox. So that that's the part of the intuition part It's really checking in where you're at, where am I at in my health journey and how do I really use these tools in a way that works for me sustainably? So that intuitive, that four weeks flexible fasting protocol in the book, as I mentioned every week throughout the book, is depending on your menstrual cycle, you can adjust and make it a lighter faster fasting day or a clean carb, a clean carb cycling day uh, to have it synced with your cycle. So that's that's what I would say on that. Because women are higher in because peptin uh, molecules would make them more sensitive, sensitive to caloric restriction and longer times of ketosis. So there is some studies to show that women are more sensitive to these state, but that's not all women. And if they have other inflammatory problems or blood sugar issues or metabolic issues on top of that, those things need to be sorted out before you're really worrying about the, the, the long-term effects, the um, the cyclical approach. So it's important to check in with your body throughout this time and really being curious about what your body's telling you.
1: And this is the type of critical thinking (laughs) that I want my women to adopt. And I think so. I mean, I, I did this myself, right? I made this mistake myself for years where I would just try to white knuckle it all the way through the month. Right. It was like, I tried to fast the same way. I tried to eat the same way and it never worked out for me. And I think when you adopt an approach like this, where it's like, it's going to be. This is what I need right now. I might not need this in the future. This and I, and to have that um, uh, cognitive flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to say, okay, this I I I'm on the inflammation spectrum. I need I have things that I need to course correct with. So this is going to be what I'm going to do for the next call it six nine months a year whatever it is Um, and then in a year as you're going through and you're taking these quizzes that you've provided you can kind of see your progress um, Mm -hmm. and then you can adapt you can change which is so important I think the ability to check in with yourself and say okay I was doing this like OMAD thing every other day and I was, and now I don't need it as much. Like now I can maybe move more to like week one and two, I can just cycle with that. And you can sort of use some of the different tools that you've provided and, and change them to fit what you
0: need. Absolutely. Yeah. So these are things that people can have long term. It's, it's just a matter of when you pick them up. And, you know, always different seasons of our life or different times in our life. We don't always have to pick up every tool that we used to pick up. So yeah, it's it's definitely when people get this and have that aha moment for themselves, it really is just, we all have this and within us, we, this is our birthright. Metabolic flexibility is our birthright. And people need to just give their body the chance to reclaim that for themselves.
1: Well said. It is our design. Absolutely. Um, can you touch on, you've mentioned a couple of times and I I would just like you to elaborate on clean carbohydrates. So I, I, I think I understand what you're talking about, but just for the audience, um, Mm -hmm. when you say, you know, you're cycling up, uh, carbohydrates, for example, you know, pre ovulatory or, uh, right before your bleed week, right before you get your period, what do you mean when you say clean carbohydrates?
0: So the, what, From a macronutrient ratio, when I'm talking about clean carb cycling, we're less than 50 grams of carbohydrates. Uh, on your ketotarian days, and then the clean carb cycling ketotarian days are 75 grams, 150 grams. By no means is it high carb. We're not like carb loading massively, but it's just you're coming out of ketosis probably, or it's definitely le- lessening it. And for most people, you would come out of ketosis, especially in the upper limit of 100, 150 grams um, of carbohydrates. But what that looks like is increasing things like fruits. And increasing things like starches, like sweet potatoes or other types of potatoes, increasing things like gluten free grains, like rice um, or quinoa. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're increasing our carbohydrates in that way. And sometimes and it's important to opening up. I'm glad that we're talking about this is to to be to clarify that when we talk about carbohydrates we're not just talking about grains because people hear the word carbs and they think it's just we're just talking about grains and bread basically well fruit is a carbohydrate sweet potatoes are carbohydrate legumes are carbohydrate like those all have carbohydrates in them so it's we're that's why i'm saying clean carb cycling because you're getting these whole food based carbs um and they some of them have protein in it as well uh and and some of them have fat in it as well but you um we're doing it in very specific ways or when you need to, when you need that kindling on the fire. So maybe it's around a heavy workout. Maybe it's around your menstrual cycle. Maybe it's around just personal preference. Some people do it weekly. They'll do a cyclical approach like three or four days in ketosis and then increase their clean carbohydrates on the the remaining days of the the week. So that is the grace and the lightness and the flexibility that I want people to learn for themselves and have this, have these amazing tools to be used on a way that works for you sustainably.
1: I want to ask you a couple of common questions that I always get. Um, and that is around what breaks the fast. Um, <laughs> it's probably the number one question that I get. Yeah. What breaks the fast? Is it fatty coffee? Is it fatty tea? Is it, is it fat? Is it like what breaks the fast? So um, I know you talk a little bit about this in the book, but I'd love for you to expand on an yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll throw, like, I think it context matters. You know, what, you know, what your goal is really matters in terms of what breaks the fast in your opinion, what, what breaks the fast?
0: So it's a gradient, right? It's a spectrum too. It's not all or nothing. If you're, and you're never going to get it agreed upon, um, like full, like a line, the line's never going to be agreed upon within the fasting community, (laughs) but party lines are divided. Yes, exactly. So (laughs) the error on the side of, in my opinion, error on the side of if, if, have nothing with calories in it, or that is going to stimulate digestion. That's what I would say. So think water, tea, coffee with nothing in it. That's going to most people agree on that. Some people will say coffee could raise cortisol levels, and I, I'm not worried about that because fasting increases cortisol levels. That's part of the hormesis. That's not a bad thing. Right. Coffee can increase lipolysis and fat burning, and ha- it has many other types of catechins and polyphenols and things like that. Same with tea. So I don't really like give much credence on that unless someone's sensitive to caffeine if someone's like a slow metabolizer of caffeine if caffeine makes you anxious or heart palpitations then don't have that that's not good whether you're fasting or not fasting but the average person that tolerates good quality organic coffee organic tea something without calories i would say that's a great fasting tool the next step in are th- things that mimic fasting. So adding in the ghee or the MCT oil, where you're getting some extra fuel, you're getting some calories, but it's not going to impact insulin. It's not going to impact. It's going to impact digestion negligibly if you're using just a small amount of it and you're only having one or two cups of it. Uh, and it doesn't have protein, so it's not going to impact mTOR, which is that one pathway that you want to keep a bit lower during your fast because that has to do with a lot of the longevity, the anti-disease, the autophagy benefits, the cellular recycling. The cellular recycling benefits of fasting, uh, so that's going to be to me where the line is. And then once you start going into like adding in things with a little bit of protein, whether that's like a collagen powder or even like almond milk that has a small amount of protein in it, it's not that it's going to cancel out your fast because calorically you're not having that much, uh, so it's still going to be fasting mimicking. But at that point, you're going to be impacting digestion a little bit more and the protein. The pathway of mTOR is a little bit more sensitive to those proteins. So, for me, if someone's trying to intermittent fast and get all the benefits, I would want to err on the side of. Let's get, keep mTOR lower. Let's be as light on digestion as we can. And let's give the gut as big as big of a break as we can. So I would stick to just the healthy fats because you're only having a tablespoon or so in them or have no, no calories at all and just stick with water, tea, coffee, and electrolytes, obviously, which is basically you could add those to anything. But mainly, most people are adding it to water because the electrolytes like magnesium, sodium, potassium, chloride are going to be um, excreted out of the body during this metabolic building of becoming more metabolically flexible. So you want to make sure you're well hydrated with electrolytes, especially at the beginning of fasting or for those longer fasts.
1: Right. And as you said, it's an oscillating scale. So if you have some, you know, MCT oil or some collagen or something in your coffee, that doesn't mean you failed. It just means that the effects are just going to be a little lighter than what you might have otherwise had with an herbal tea or a black coffee.
0: Yeah, exactly. And maybe you would use, maybe you would lean on the MCT oil and the ghee on the almost OMAD week, but you probably won't need to do it as much on the lighter weeks. So it's, it's not something that you always have to depend on, but it's a tool within the toolbox if you want to explore with it.
1: Let's talk a little bit about exercise and fasting. This is another question I always get, like, should I break my fast right after the exercise? Should I, you know, should I eat before I work at like fasted workouts? Where does exercising fit into the protocol?
0: Well. I, I talk about this at length in the book. I don't want people to like, like some people get excited and overeager and they want to change everything in their life. They want to start a new wellness regimen. They want to start doing CrossFit and fasting all at the same time. I wouldn't necessarily like jump in everything at once. Like if you've never worked out before to do intermittent fasting and then go to a heavy workout. Um, but if it's something you already do, then that's fine. Keep doing what you're doing. Because we're again, we're not chronically lowering calories. These are all variable. There's a lot of variation. You're not always doing deep fasts. So you may want to modify when you work out sometimes, like especially on the almost OMAD week, but that's only every other day. And you may just do it when you break the fast uh, during your eating window. Uh, or work out on your odd days on the 12-12 days, because it's every other day. Every other week. In the in the protocol I think it can be uh, done if you already do it um, so just check in with your body again sometimes too much exercise during this time isn't a good thing depending on what you're going through with your health but the average person, It could be a great thing so what i recommend in the book is all those things plus to experiment with a fasted workout which has some exciting research around it as far as increasing human growth hormone and fat burning and these uh it's added hormesis so you can add some it can enhance some of the benefits of fasting in theory but then try a non-fasted workout too so i think variety there is a good idea and see where you feel the best with and what's sustainable for you because obviously the workout. whatever you do it has to be something that you enjoy and you can do repeatedly otherwise it's like what's what's the point so uh, everybody's different in that category
1: Yeah. And I think it's also a matter of personal preference too. Like I have tried both the non-fasted and I just prefer fasted workouts. I feel like when I eat or have something before, I just feel like I have a brick in my stomach. So I just like Mm -hmm. to not have, it's just, it's, it's just a personal preference. And as you were saying, maybe there's some symbiosis with the hormetic effects of both the fasting and the caffeine and the workout together. Um, but also, you know, it would, it would, it would behoove you to not work out because like, if you say, okay, I'm not going to work out because I can't do it fasted, you know, you're missing the point, right? The point is you work out when you can, like don't not work out. right. And if you can play with a little bit of like, sometimes you get food, sometimes you don't, depending on what week you are in this fasting regimen. Um, I think that that's, that's great advice as well.
0: Yeah. Flexibility. I think that's the term that I use throughout the book. It's flexibility. I want people to have metabolic flexibility, but I want them to have flexibility in how they approach these things too. And not feel like they're a failure if they mix things up. There's benefits to all of these things.
1: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about fasting as a means for mental clarity and increasing, you know, maybe as more of a spiritual uh, practice. I think that, you know, we've taught, we've geeked out a lot on like, here's autophagy and here's mTOR and here's, you know, all these fun things <laughs> that are, you know, for, yeah, I could talk about this for hours. I think it's uh, fascinating. But we also know that throughout history, uh, people have fasted to find answers to questions, uh, philosophical, spiritual questions uh, for self actualization. Of course, we have religions that, you know, I'm thinking specifically, well, Christians uh, fast for Lent and Muslims mm-hmm. fast for Ramadan. And, you know, there's a whole, and, and, and I'm missing many, many cultures, um, mm-hmm. I realize as I say that. Um, but what are, what have been some of the benefits that you have noticed either personally, professionally with your clients um, around the psychological um, and spiritual benefits of fasting?
0: Yeah, it's a great, you know, one of the blurbs in the book It's from Alejandro Younger, who's a colleague of ours. And he, um, great friend of mine. And he, I feel like he said it very beautifully. He, I'm paraphrasing it. You have to read it. But it basically says, we're in desperate need of a pause in our culture. And I thought like there, he hit on something so eloquent there. There's something beautiful where I talk about this as above, as above, so below in the book where there's so much imbalance going on in our world today. There's so much noise going on geopolitically just on social media, all the noise technology, all the noise, and then uh, cl- climate change noise on an environmental level and that same imbalance is going on in someone's body. I mean, you look at inflammation. It's 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 like physiological climate change. It's it's imbalanced immune activity. There's something inherently wrong with inflammation. It's just imbalanced inflammation. So there's an imbalance going on in a, on a micro level too, and there's a lot of mental, emotional, spiritual imbalance going on in the form of people that are struggling with. Um, just mental health issues. And then this larger picture of what I talk about in the book, this bi-directional relationship between our thoughts and emotions and physiology, because you know, stress and shame and trauma, all that stuff will impact your inflammation levels too. But then conversely, like these underlying gut issues and metabolic issues will fuel anxiety and depression too. Anxiety, depression have inflammatory components to them. Fatigue has inflammatory components to them. So there's this physical imbalance going on permeating around the globe and also in the body human body but it's also happening on a mental emotional spiritual level and they're two sides of the same coin so fasting is a great way to therapeutically bring balance on a physical level but when used as a mindfulness practice, it can also bring balance on a mental, emotional, spiritual level, which is nothing new. Right. I mean, I'm just again, I'm reminding people Paracelsus, the father of modern medicine, one of the fathers of modern medicine, other than Hippocrates, which also used fast. He, he also used fasting. But Paracelsus also used fasting. He knew, he's known as the father of toxicology. who's living in the late 1400s, early 1500s in Switzerland he was known as a Martin Luther of medicine because he was reforming medicine at the time. He called fasting the physician within, which I think is a really beautiful way of thinking about it. It's this inner doctor that does a lot of things that we talked about. But one of them is that on a physical level, it's increasing brain function. It's increasing BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. It's increasing mitochondrial function or cellular energy. It's lowering neuroinflammation. It's improving neuroplasticity. So that's physiologically helping the brain be more resilient and more balanced and more sharp and more centered. But look, when it's used as a mindfulness practice it's a game changer to really exponentially help enhance the benefits of this practice. So these metaphysical meals of well, what do I do when I'm not eating? Like we're so used to constantly consuming, we're like consuming endless like FOMO inducing content on social media or consuming the next snack and food, or we're constantly wanting to distract and numb ourselves where what, what we can do during these times of fasting is really acts of stillness. These meals, so to speak, these mindfulness meals of calm, the noise in our body and in our life, in our in our space. So whether that's going out in nature and you know using nature as a meditation, where I talk about the research coming out of Japan and South Korea of shinrin yoku of forest bathing and really helping bring l- lower cortisol levels, lower inflammation levels. What if you do that during your fast? Or what if you do journaling? Or what if you do just more traditional prayer? Maybe you do a mindfulness meditation. Maybe you uh, do some acts of active service for something, you know, in the, in the world. So that is in my opinion more mo- a modern approach to what humans would have done throughout history with times of fasting. Cause we know the fasting has all these health benefits, but like you said, almost every major religion used use fasting with it's Islam with Ramadan, Christianity with Lent Judaism with Yom Kippur and every almost every indigenous culture around the world no matter where your ancestors came from it's part of our DNA it's part of our physical DNA but it's also part of our spiritual DNA and it's decreasing that again that that genetic epigenetic mismatch on that level too that we're so divorced from our roots where, look at the state of affairs of our world where on the major things, but then on a minor thing, even the idea for some people that fasting could be intuitive was like upsetting. Well, it's our ancestors would laugh at that. They're very intuitive because it's, it's really part of our, about our, part of our blueprint.
1: And I think it's so empowering in a way to break free from the narrative that big food feeds us, that we always have to have this 100 calorie snack within arm's reach at all times, right? This psychological freedom that is like, oh, I actually don't need to be eating all the time. Like my body actually knows what to do. And then when you get into, you know, all the details, the mechanistic details that you talk about in the book around gluconeogenesis and your body can actually make its own, you don't need to always have the carbs, right? So Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that this is such a, And that's one of the things that I, clients will report to me that it feels so powerful to be able to fast because we're, we're told big food and, you know, maybe to an extent big pharma, they want us as clients, right. So they want, Mm -hmm. you know, us to be having the processed foods with the seed oils and the omega-6s and all the other, you know, chemo, you know, the chemical soup that, um, that they put Mm -hmm. into foods that don't, you know, grow from the ground or come from a tree or swim or walk on the land or what have you. So, uh, really, really appreciate that insight as well. So, well, as we're, as we're wrapping up, um, I guess, you know, the, the, my last question to you is what does your fasting regimen look like today? So this is obviously a practice that has uh, served you very well. Is this something that you follow? Has your has your fasting regimen ebbed and flowed as well as you've gone through this protocol yourself, or what does it look like for you in, in the day to day?
0: Yeah, so I do exactly what I advocate the reader to do. I evolved the protocol for myself, so I do all all the types of fasting that I recommend in the book. Each week is a different week. I do all of those, but I interchange it throughout the week. So I'll do sometimes an OMAD week. And then sometimes I will do an OMAD like once or twice. Sometimes I'll do it. No, no times. I'm like, if you're looking at just today, I'm doing an 18 hour fast today, but it's not something I'm willing or I'm super obsessive about. I barely think about it. I just, I'm just kind of in the flow. I have a general thought in the morning and intention of what it looks like, but I'll show up for myself and intuitively, maybe I'll think I'm going to, to do an 18 hour fast. Then I wake up and i realize I'm not going to do it. I'll do a 12, 12. And there's no shame on that. There's that, that grace and that lightness where, and that flexibility that I want people to have for themselves. So I'm really doing all the things that I talk about in the book today. As an example, I am doing an 18 hour fast. I just had Earl Grey tea in the morning, um, which I talk about this in the book, but Earl Grey tea has bergamot, which is a citrus from Calabria in Italy, and it, it supports autophagy, these benefits of fasting. So the bergamot supports autophagy, fasting supports autophagy and a ketogenic diet supports autophagy too. So I'll typically do that as sort of my weird, like biohacking tool. And uh, I broke break my, break my fast at lunch and then I'll eat about a six hour, maybe seven hour eating window, it might be 17 hours, um, but around there um, for today. And then uh, tomorrow, it probably will look something different. It's just, uh, I'm busy consulting patients. So the those eat t- tighter eating windows tend to really work for me. And I it's feel a nice great. a clinical
1: biohack as a docket. Like, <laughs> you, know, like, you can busy. just schedule them back to back without worrying. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it works for my <laughs> schedule, but, yeah. and then on the weekends I find myself doing a 12, 12, like I'll wake up and have breakfast with my kids and like have it work with your schedule. It should be sustainable. It should be enjoyable, but That's what I want people to learn from themselves is how to intuitively evolve this to suit their needs.
1: Well, this has just been an absolute delight uh, talking to you, Will. Uh, you're a wealth of knowledge. Really know your stuff. Um, if people want to work with you, find the book. Uh, how can they? Where can they find the book? Um, where can they find you? Whether they want to interact with you, social media, or maybe in a doctor-patient capacity, like tell tell people all the places that they can find you.
0: Sure. Thank you so much. Very nice of you. That everything's at drwillcole.com. So it's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. com. And yeah, that, that just all the links to the books are there, but you can go on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores and get the books there too. Um, and on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole, but we're on, on all the social media places, but I'm mainly active on, on Instagram. Awesome.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I know that this is going to be so valuable for everyone listening. So I appreciate your time and your wisdom that you've shared with us today. Thank you. All right. So there you have it. Fasting for women, fasting for all sorts, fasting for humankind. Hopefully now you have a guidebook or at least a template for you to start on your fasting journey if you have not already. And in leaving you today, I always like to leave you on a high note with some love. And this is a review that was left for the podcast from the motherland from Canada, where I hail from. And this is from T. Nell Kell. And she writes, what a great podcast, enlightening. Dr. Stephanie, your podcast has opened my eyes up to so much information about women's health. In my mid forties, this is all the information that I've been looking for. If only I knew all of this when I was young. Thank you so much from Calgary. You know, everybody that I meet from Western Canada... Uh, is just delightful. And uh, you are no different. So thank you so much for taking the time to write this review. And I would also encourage all of you, if you are still listening, uh, please to leave a review, leave a rating, subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Us grow the pod. We watch our numbers, we watch our reviews, we watch all of those things. And then when we see reviews, we also know that what we're doing is meaningful to you and it helps us produce more content there as well. So, absolutely w- wishing you an absolutely gorgeous week. Thank you for all the love that we receive every week. And even if you got something to say that's not full of love, like I'll hear it too, right? I'm a grown woman, I can take it. So, I would love to hear all of your feedback on the pod. And until Wednesday, uh, Uh, when we meet again for Geeky Magic, I bid you adieu. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you.